Welcome and thank you so much for worshiping with us this afternoon. In the 1970s, there was this author, his name was Edward Packer, and he was struggling to get any of his ideas for children's books published. So in a moment of inspiration, he thought about how much his own daughters enjoyed helping him come up with creative endings to the stories that he would improv to them at night. And even though the first nine publishers rejected his idea, he eventually sold over 200 million books uh, under the title Choose Your Own Adventure theme. And if you were a parent or a young reader in the 80s and 90s, you might be familiar with that format. I owned at least a dozen of those. Those brought back some happy memories today when I looked at that picture. What would happen is you'd read a few pages that would kind of introduce you to the setting and the context. And then, unlike any other books, uh, you would then get to pick what your character did uh, and where you'd get to go next. And as fun as it was to try to make the perfect decisions to get to the end of the book, uh, sometimes the author would mess with you. And sometimes, even though you'd make the sensible choice, a disaster would come across your character. Here's like a hypothetical remembering that I made up. Uh, it would say something like, if you want to climb the tree to escape the angry lions, turn to page 44. But if you want to attempt to run from them, turn to page 23. Well, what should we do, crowd? Uh, we'll, we'll climb the tree, right? It seems safer. So you turn to page 44, only to see, like it, your stomach would always drop when you just see one sentence, because that meant something bad was going to happen. I would say, you climb the tree just in time to escape the bloodthirsty lions, only to discover a deadly python perched in the branches. It wraps its coils around you, and your safari adventure has come to an end, right? That's, that's just a taste of the choose-your-own-adventure books. It'd be really frustrating when you, know, you get in bed and you think you're going to get all the way to the end, only to have the story end after a few pages. So I don't know if you guys were like me, I kind of came up with like a, a secret hack. I came up with a way to kind of get to the end of the book, so to speak. Maybe you guys could do this too. I'd turn to the back and I'd read the last couple of pages, right? <laughs> and if you knew where the story ended and who the characters were that would get you to the end and some of the places and things that you would need to pick up along the way, now you could go back and start over and know what was the right choice to get to the end. Well, this fall, the last couple of weeks, we've been studying some of the things that the Bible reveals to us are the benefits of worship. And this afternoon, we come across another clear advantage of worship and how it helps us navigate through the hardships and the challenges and the downs of life. And uh, <laughs> the benefit that we come across today is a lot like that secret to get to the end of a choose-your-own-adventure book. The Bible concludes with the book of Revelation. And even though the book of Revelation is filled with tribulations and wars, the main idea of the book of Revelation is that Jesus Christ is forever worshipped in heaven because of his victory over sin and death. And just like I could survive those choose-your-own-adventure books because I already knew the ending, the same is true, of course, in our spiritual lives. Worship reminds us of Jesus Christ's ultimate victory over sin and death. And as we, here in the present, are certain of the ending, 
we can more easily navigate and overcome the hardships of the presence. Uh, so let's spend the next 20 minutes studying the main idea of the book of Revelation, the main idea of Revelation 5, 7 to 10. And let's be encouraged with all the ways that a believer in Jesus Christ can find hope in the present because of Jesus Christ's past and future victories. Uh, I hope you got an outline when you came in uh, in your sermon bulletin. And let's just talk about uh, today's topic, today's sermon, in three sections. In section one, let's talk about the context and the style and the tone of the book of Revelations. Because it's a strange one. <laughs> it's, it's got a lot of very unique features. Let's spend section two talking about the main idea of Revelation 5, 7 to 10 and what's so significant about today's scripture. And let's wrap up with how we can find hope in the present, regardless of the hardships that we're enduring, because of the past and the future victories of Jesus Christ. Because we know the end, we can be encouraged here in the present. All right, section one. Uh, someone uh, grabbed me when I came in and said that uh, they were in a Bible study that was studying the book of Revelation, and that's encouraging. It requires a lot of study. There's some difficult things to uh, attach ourselves to as we read through this kind of cryptic and strange book. But I think sometimes the overall purpose is misunderstood. Uh, for example, the Greek word for revelation is apocalypsi, and that's where we get our word apocalypse. And if I had more time, I'd ask you guys, what do you think the word apocalypse means? And we would probably, most of us would say something along the lines of the apocalypse is the end of the world. The apocalypse is how things are going to happen in the future, or at least how the Bible portrays the future unfolding. Uh, but that's really not what apocalypse means. In the Greek, the word literally means to uncover or reveal the true nature of something. So the main idea of Revelation isn't the end times. The main idea is that John, through this vision that it was given to him by God, is giving us the true nature of, uh, of things that we don't always see for what they are. Another reason why I would take this interpretation is because it actually tells us what this book is about right in the first sentence. Revelation 1.1 says this, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And we shorten that to Revelation. But of course, the full title is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is all about how Jesus Christ is uncovering the true nature of what will happen in the future. That, of course, being victory. That, of course, being Jesus Christ worshipped in heaven because of his victory over sin and death. Uh, as we study different sections of the Bible that have kind of different purposes and are written in different ways, it's always helpful to identify the tone. And so let's take a moment to try to figure out the tone of this strange section of the Bible. And I kind of broke it off into four parts because there's no direct comparison. There's nothing else that you'll ever find that's exactly the tone of the book of Revelation. Uh, but you guys are all familiar with science fiction, and I'm sure you all have your favorite books or TV shows or movies uh, that we would call science fiction. 
Listen to what it says here as we continue to read uh, the first sentence or two in the book of Revelation. Uh, He made these things known by sending his angel to his servant John, who here testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads these words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written, because the time is near. In other words, science fiction is a way of writing that uses an imaginative, futuristic, bizarre version of reality that helps us start to understand the tone of the book of Revelation. It's using a vision, it's using imagination, it's using a bizarre take on reality uh, to communicate to us uh, this kind of true take on things that, uh, that God wants us to uh, understand here. You guys don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to admit it, uh, but uh, some of you probably went through a heavy metal phase, right? And uh, from some of you, I can tell that would have been in the 70s or the 80s. And uh, back in the 70s, when heavy metal was kind of becoming, I guess, more, uh, more fashionable, more kind of uh, public, um, you guys might even know some of the lyrics of these songs. And what I want to point out is that heavy metal songs... They kind of have a power to them. They're kind of about this crash between good and evil, and they also make no sense, okay? <laughs> For example, you've all heard the Led Zeppelin song, Stairway to Heaven. Listen to one of the, cor- one of the lyrics. I think it's like the third lyric. It says, There's a feeling I get when I look to the West, and my spirit is crying for leaving. And my thoughts I have seen rings of smoke through the trees and the voices of those who stand looking. We could get a room full of 50 professors and we could talk about that for 10 years and nobody would know what it means. It's supposed to be ambiguous and it's supposed to be mysterious and it's supposed to be confusing. And I would say that's about 25% of the tone of the book of Revelation. There's things in there that are supposed to be mystical and put us on edge and have us wonder what is being unveiled there. I'd say another quarter of the tone of Revelation is symbolism. If you just read through it, you don't know what the symbols mean, you're not going to understand what's uh, happening, and we don't always know what those symbols are, but just a couple, for example. The number seven is used a lot, and that's symbolic for something that's completed, something that's finished. The color white is used a lot, and that is symbolic for victory. Uh, Horses are used a lot, and the horses are symbolic of military power. The list goes on and on. The book of Revelation, to understand its tone, you have to understand that it's kind of unveiling this code of symbols that are often used earlier uh, and in middle portions of the Bible. So it's kind of unveiling the symbolic code uh, that's used in other places of the Bible as well. And the fourth and final part of the tone of the book of Revelation that I think is overlooked the most is the fairy tale happily ever after ending. If you guys find yourself downstairs after a service uh, months from now and everybody's drinking coffee and, uh, and you kind of walk up on a conversation and they're talking about the book of Revelation, it will probably be kind of an ominous conversation. Like, like nine times out of ten when I hear people talking about the book of Revelation, they're like, well, you know all about the tribulations, right? Well, you know all about the mark of the beast, right? And they're talking about these kind of scary and ominous things. But here's how the book of Revelation ends. The book of Revelation ends with Jesus Christ sitting on his throne. The book of Revelation ends with all things being made new. All of creation is restored. 
The river of life and the tree of life that were mentioned in the book of Genesis are back on the scene, making everything uh, full of vitality and beauty again. And the churches are rewarded according to their work and their faithfulness, right? That's a, hap- that's a happy ending. We don't think of Revelation as being happily ever after, but if you get to the final chapter, that's exactly what it is telling us with an exclamation point. So let's uh, move on here to section two and start to talk a little bit about exactly what today's passage is all about. If you guys would, turn with me to Revelation 5. And let's just be reminded here with this scene that we're talking about today, and I promise it's going to have very practical and relevant application for us. But it's strange, and it's sticking with that tone that we've just been talking about. Revelation 5, 1 to 3 says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Well, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even looked inside of it. And I wept and I wept because no one could be found who was worthy to open the scrolls. And for the sake of time, let's move ahead to verses 11 and 12 of Revelation chapter 5. And it says this, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. See that symbolism? And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And so that's a very strange and cryptic scene. Let's just talk a little bit about what's happening and why it's so practical and relevant for us today. Um, One sermon I read this week kind of gave an illustration kind of like this. Imagine in the present day, a family is gathered in the mansion of a very uh, wealthy uh, patriarch uh, who just passed away. And it's the reading of the will, but nobody up to that point knows what the terms and the criteria are for how the estate is going to be distributed. And the lawyer starts to read the official document, and he says the entirety of this wealthy estate will go to the first relative who graduates from an Ivy League school and plays professional football and becomes an officer in the military and serves during wartime and leads a Fortune 500 company and founds a charitable, uh, a charitable foundation and becomes a medical physician and comes up with a cure for polio, right? And everyone starts weeping because they're like, we, th- we thought this estate was going to be broken off in parts and given to us, but there's no one in this family who will ever meet all of those qualifications of that criteria. But then finally, because it's a, uh, a made-up example, a long-lost relative comes through the door and he or she says, all of those things are true about me. And suddenly there's great joy, and not only joy because that estate will be passed on to that person, but that person says, now that it's rightfully been given to me, I am now going to break it up and share it with everybody in this room. Like, that would be a joyous occasion. And that is what's happening here in Revelation 5. Nobody has been found worthy until Jesus Christ is celebrated for his victory on Resurrection Sunday over death. And, uh, and there's rejoicing in heaven because of that great ultimate victory. So the next time somebody's talking to you about the book of Revelation, I would suggest that you tell them to just, like, just... All right, Let's, don't worry about the tribulations. Don't worry about all the symbolism. 
This is what the book of Revelation is all about. Jesus Christ is worshipped in heaven for past, present, and future because of his victory over sin and death. That's what the book of Revelation is really all about. And the reason it's in the Bible and the reason it's there for us to read and to study is to remind us that as persecuted Christians, we can grow in hope and certainty of Christ's victory as we recognize it, as we celebrate it, as we worship Jesus Christ for what he's done. That's the main idea. I don't mean to sell it short. Of course, there's a lot of other great things uh, to study and learn about that book as well. But it's mainly about how Jesus Christ has been victorious over sin and death. And as we worship Jesus, there's ways that that victory can become powerful and inspirational in our lives as well. So thanks for bearing with me kind of through that uh, maybe um, study of the tone and the genre and the purpose of the book of Revelation as well as what Revelation 5, 1 to 12 is all about. But where I really wanted to get to and what I really wanted to talk about today is how that victory can inspire and encourage us in the present. There's a lot of loss in this room. There's a lot of failure in sin in this room, myself included. And as we worship Jesus Christ, it reestablishes his victory, and then that brings power and victory into our lives as well. You might be asking yourself, how could a victory from the past, or how could a victory from the future bring me joy and hope in the present? I want to just wrap up today with three examples of how victory in the past and the present can give us hope and joy in our present. And the first example is this. If you guys can see up there on the board, the sun is kind of in my eyes. But um, in the 1930s, I think the most famous athlete was a German boxer named Max Schmeling. Hitler gave him presents. The German national curfew would get lifted so that the whole country could gather and watch his fights. And the Nazi party used him in their propaganda as they tried to intimidate the whole world with this false notion that Germans were culturally and ethnically superior to all other races. Americans didn't necessarily believe that at first. They took it for the lies and the propaganda that it was. But then in 1936, Max Schmeling actually knocked down Joe Lewis in the 12th round at a sold-out Yankee Stadium. Joe Lewis was America's greatest boxer. He was young. He was up and coming. He was actually 24-0 at that time. He had never lost a fight, which was what made it so shocking when that German Max Schmeling knocked him out in the 12th round in that packed Yankee Stadium. Everybody knew that war with Germany was looming on the horizon. And this insidious thought started to creep into the minds of Americans that maybe the Germans are culturally and ethnically superior to us if Max Schmeling could knock out Joe Lewis. Well, good news is they had a rematch. And uh, on June 22, 1938, again in a sold-out Yankee Stadium, Joe Lewis knocked out Max Schmeling in two minutes into the first round. He beat him so bad that he actually broke several of his vertebrae with punches to the body, and Max Schmeling had to go to the hospital for 10 days. 
When Joe Lewis pummeled Max Schmeling two minutes into the first round in their rematch, Americans would never doubt their strength matching up to the Germans again. Even though World War II would go on to last till September of 1945, and even though the actual worst mass combat was still ahead, Joe Lewis's victory over Max Schmeling removed the fear and the narrative that Germans were superior. Do you guys understand why this illustration is so powerful? Because our champion had defeated their champion, and that changed the narrative. For the rest of your life on earth, you will face sin and death. And I hate to say this, but some of your worst battles are still ahead of you. But a great benefit of worship is that it continually reminds us that our champion has defeated their champion, right? Do you understand why that's so important that we come here on Sundays and worship together and celebrate the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death? Because then on Tuesday and Saturday night, terrible things are going to happen again. And just like the Nazis tried to take over Europe with the power of intimidation, sin and death tries to take over our lives with the power of sin and intimidation. But of course, worship reestablishes the victory that Jesus Christ has already demonstrated over the grave. And when we have the discipline to remind ourselves of that victory and reestablish its power in our life, it reminds us that our champion has defeated their champion. All right, here's another example of how past and future victory can give us hope and inspiration, even in the present. Uh, if you guys look at this next picture of how devastated Europe, well, here's another example from World War II. I just want you to picture how utterly devastated Europe was after six years of just bloody battle. I mean, the cities in, Britain, in England and France and Belgium and Germany, I mean, they all looked like this. The, farms were, the farmlands were ravaged, the bridges were bombed, uh, the fields were burned, the cities looked like this. And that was after just six years of terrible carnage. There was nothing left in the banks. There was nowhere left to turn. How could Europe possibly find the inspiration to move forward? Well, it was because of largely something called the Marshall Plan. Named after U.S. Secretary of State George Marshall, essentially, America offered $12 billion to Europe, spread out over the next decade for their rebuilding efforts. So Europe found the hope to rebuild. I'm sure many of you have had the privilege of traveling there and seeing just how beautiful and unspoiled it seems today. But of course, that's not how it was back in the 40s. It was the vast wealth of their allies that drew them up out of the poverty that they we're experiencing. We will fail. We have failed. We'll fail in the future. When we lose a dear believer to death, when the consequences of sin damage relationships, there's all sorts of times when we feel like we're compromised, when we've lost, when we don't have the strength that we need to carry on in our faith. Worship of Jesus Christ reminds us of our victorious partners' vast resources available to pull us out of the spiritual devastation and poverty that we might be languishing in, right? Like Europe did not have what they needed to rebuild, but through a partnership with a victorious ally, they had everything that they needed. In the same way, even in our lowest points, 
Worship of Jesus Christ reminds us of our victorious partner's vast resources available to pull us out of our depths, to pull us out of our sin, to pull us out of our failure. What a beautiful illustration of a benefit of worship as the vast resources of our victorious ally are available to us and we just need that reminder sometimes, don't we? Here's the last example. 20 years from now, people are going to say, Mom, Dad, Grandma, Grandpa, what did you do during COVID? We're going to say, we watched a lot of TV, right? Uh, one of the most popular shows uh, of uh, the last couple of months was a documentary that originally premiered on ESPN called The Last Dance. It was a 10-hour documentary series on the 1997 Chicago Bulls, okay, a basketball team from 20 years ago. And you might think to yourself, why would anybody spend 10 hours watching a documentary of a basketball team from 20 years ago? Let me just give you some quick statistics. Uh, it was the most watched documentary ever on ESPN. ESPN said it was the most watched show ever on their network since 2004. 13 million viewers tuned in for every episode the first time that it aired. And now that it's uh, on Netflix, Netflix has reported that 24 million people have watched it on their platform. Right? So my question is, why are so many people watching a show about a basketball team from 1997? I don't know. <laughs> but I watched it. And, and here's, here's my guess, okay? I remembered what that victory felt like. I grew up in Chicago and I watched all those games back 20 years ago when they happened. But the victory started to feel unfamiliar. And through that footage and through those interviews and through that show, the victory felt familiar again. And even if you weren't a basketball fan, I mean, Michael Jordan was on commercials all the time and sometimes even just the way people talked and the music in the background and the clothes that they wear, it just made you feel familiar with that victory, that famous victory from back then. Even last spring, even this summer, when things were really bad, uh, when uh, the future was uncertain, when the economy was crumbling, I think so many millions of people tuned in to watch that show because it just felt good to be reminded of the familiarity of victory. And I'd say the, the third and final reason uh, why we see that um, worship is so beneficial to us is even when things are low, even when the future is uncertain, worshiping Jesus Christ fills us with the familiarity of that victory from the past, much like that sports documentary did. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and close us with a final song or two. And as they do, let me just wrap it up with our summary statement. And our summary statement is this. A Christian can grow in hope and certainty of Christ's ultimate victory over sin and death through the practice of worship. Let's do that now. Let's come together and let's worship and let's be reminded of the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death, past and future. We still fight against sin and death in the present. We still experience the, the failure uh, and the losses that sin and death can bring into our lives. But worship of Jesus Christ encourages us with the familiarity of that feeling of victory uh, as, well as, um, as well as so many of these other reasons of how focusing on that past and future victory lift us up in the present.